0: I'm Danny Stover, and this is Today in TO, a podcast that takes a look at the biggest stories in the city and connects the dots on what's going on. On today's episode, you're always hearing that we need more homes built faster in Ontario to the tune of 1.5 million by 2031. Okay, so not including the Greenbelt, where can all of these homes actually fit? Well, a Toronto-based architecture and design firm set out to find out how this could be done. And what they found was, it's not only possible, but you could actually fit about 1.8 million homes in the GTA alone. Also, the FIFA World Cup is coming to Toronto. Eventually, they have announced who's getting what and when, so I'll fill you in on that, and then you'll learn more about the history of BMO Field. That's all coming up on Today in TO. You know how you're always hearing that more housing needs to be built in Ontario? And fast. In November of 2022, the province passed Bill 23 called the More Homes Built Faster Act. And combined with Ontario's Housing Supply Action Plan, the goal is to add 1.5 million homes to the province by 2031. Now, to refresh your memory, what the province wanted to do was not what they were gonna do, because their plan was to not really tell anyone, except for their developer friends, that they were selling off parcels of protected land in the Greenbelt. And that wasted a lot of time, but it also resulted in the province backing off. Premier Doug Ford reversed his decision and announced all protections would be reinstated. Not all of them have yet, um, but I covered the Greenbelt drama in previous episodes. So if you need an update, you got it, but you got to go back. And it was quite the scandal, really. People lost their jobs. There were alleged secret massage meetings in a Vegas hotel. Accountability. What's that? Anyway, one of the arguments, as this was all playing out over the course of last year, was you don't even need the greenbelt because there is plenty of space in the GTA alone to get this done. In fact, BDP Quadrangle is a Toronto-based architecture and design firm, and they're working to answer a key question. If the goal is to build 1.5 million homes in Ontario in the next seven years or so, we need to know where, and we need to know how. Ozzy Arole is a senior associate at BDP Quadrangle. And first, what exactly does 1.5 million homes look like?
1: So that's a great question. And it was a point of interest when uh, we had seen that the More Homes Built Faster Act, Bill 23, was released in late 2022. Um, uh, Really, the question, as you say, is is how? Um, And one of the things that we were keen to do was to do a sort of a a study based on quantity uh, just within the city of Toronto alone um, and looking at densifying existing transit nodes, um, uh, mid-rise right-of-way guidelines, uh, the downtown tall building guidelines, and then subsequent to which the single buildings uh, into multiple units. I think that was a, a policy that was passed through by Toronto. And looking at all of those four things, we discovered that you could uh, deliver 1.8 million homes just within the city of Toronto alone. So that that was a quantitative study that we had undertaken just to see what capacity the city region uh, could accommodate based on vacant sites, areas where you could densify um, that are within close proximity to sustainable transit and so on.
0: Okay. So in Toronto, we could be building up to 1.8 million homes. What needs to be considered when we're talking about fitting all of that into an area like Greater Toronto?
1: The study undertaken two two things. One was quantity. How do we do this? And the other one, which is obviously critically important, is is quality. Um, Every neighborhood in a city has its own unique characteristics and its own identity. And it's that very thing that makes cities memorable and interesting places to visit. So it's really important that we understand that before we make any kind of interventions to increase scale and density. Um, in addition to which, um, any new intervention or any increase in density is also going to come with its own requirements in terms of uh, community assets, whether that be uh, a, a local park, um, a daycare, shops, you know, food and drink, all the things that ideally we want within walking and cyclable distance of our of our homes and they're the sort of things that help to make for healthy cities social cities equitable cities so it's, it's a combination really of trying to find where we can densify but doing it in a manner that is sympathetic to the existing communities but also understand the unique characteristics of those communities and how we can scale up from there in a way that is respectful but also supplements and supports the new, the new density that we're applying to a particular neighborhood.
0: you got any places in mind?
1: There were a few and and naturally some of these are quite contentious um, just because you always have this scenario where you, you know residents are slightly against the, 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 the idea of, of additional density um, but mainly along TTC transit corridors we think is, is an important one. Um, particularly along um, avenues and boulevards, as they specifically relate to uh, the the city's policy for mid-rise guidelines. We actually think that that's probably the area will make the biggest impact, um, 1.2 million homes. Um, But transit nodes, specifically along TTC routes, we um, identified um, as being the area that we think that The the most impact could be made.
0: (laughs) So I'm sitting on Danforth Avenue, looking out my window at the new Ontario Line. I think I know what areas you might be uh, speaking (laughs) of. (laughs) Yes,
1: I I didn't say that, but um, that that obviously that is a a prominent um, transit transit hub, and the Ontario Line, as you know, is coming online. So there's clearly opportunities there. Um, You know, we, we really just need to leverage our our current and future transit hubs as opportunities for increased density that is sustainable and reasonable, um, but really makes the most of the opportunities of, you know, transit.
0: Now, aside from finding the space and dealing with NIMBYism, what else is standing in the way of getting, and please know I despise this term, shovels in the ground?
1: That is a very complex uh, scenario. I, it's, I think it, it's primarily twofold. Um, on the one hand, I think policy in terms of planning particularly could help. Um, I think if we were to make some of the guidelines we have currently, particularly the mid-rise guidelines as of right, then you would have the opportunity to use the guidelines as they are currently set out to enable uh, developers or stakeholders to be able to confidently invest in development without the potential challenges um, of time and delays and, and, and all the sort of other things that associate with that that might, that might um, detract from interest, should we say, in development. Uh, and the other one I think is construction. I think we need to think about how we build in a much cleverer way than we are currently. Um, it was at the turn of last century that we saw the advent of the Model T, which really revolutionized uh, the way we manufacture cars and actually drove affordability significantly to make it accessible for far more people than ever before. And I think if you adopt a similar manufacturing mindset towards how we build, where we're doing it in a systemized and and, and strategic and, and kind of more clever way than perhaps what we're doing now, that might help to also drive speed and affordability. The construction element itself specifically speaks to procurement as well and supply chain. So we need to be smarter about how we procure in a manner that is accessible over a very clear program of sites that we can deliver through over the next sort of five years or so.
0: Yes. Policy and construction are the two main things standing in the way. And I think my example would be flat screen TVs. When these bad boys first hit the market, they were like thousands of dollars. And now you can find one on Facebook Marketplace for like 50 bucks. So it's about finding different materials or ways of building that are more accessible. It's about innovation. And of course, there's the policy piece. And I need an explainer because it's come up a couple of times already. What exactly is as of right when it comes to guidelines?
1: Typically uh, in the city of Toronto, we, we have a scenario where a lot of the uh, guidance on what you can do and what, how you can develop is based on pretty age old, um, age old context. So we're going back to you know several decades, should we say, of of, uh, of context. So usually, when you have to prepare and submit for a planning application, you have to rezone the site, um, and you also have to redefine what the land use associated with that site. So the Midwight guideline provides an idea of what height and density you can you can build along a particular boulevard. So and that's determined by the width of the street. So if the width of the street is say 24 meters, you're allowed to build up to 80% of that overall width. Um, but it's just a guideline. Um, whereas if that guideline was made as of right, which is an opportunity where, because it's specified and it, you're adhering to the guideline, then you can get approval much quicker, because you're adhering to that guideline. So it becomes more than the guideline it becomes more of a rule book to, to get approval. So we're just saying that you know the city have already prepared those guidelines. Um, many developers, all developers, or stakeholders are adhering to those when they're preparing applications on the areas are defined as being on avenues. So rather than going through the protracted process of months and, sadly, in some instances, years of trying to get approval on those uh, mid-rise sites, why not elevate the guidelines to a position where if you do adhere to it, then you get approvals far quicker, like say three months. Um, I, I don't see why that's not possible, and there's certainly um, municipalities in other places of the world where thirteen weeks, circa three months, is a reasonable um, timeline for approving applications of that scale.
0: Okay, so if you play by the rules, you get through the line faster.
1: Correct. If the rule, if the rules are made clear, and that if you play by those rules exactly as you say then you, you should get approval much more quickly. So rather than it just being guidelines, just, just be clear and say these are the rules and everyone has a clear set of parameters against which they would expect to get approval much quicker than they get in now.
0: So to recap and break it down, meeting the Bill 23 goal is possible. If you densify transit nodes, that could lead to 470,000 new housing opportunities through mid and high rise buildings. Using the right of way guidelines could add another 1.1 million plus homes. And finally, by turning some single dwellings into multiple units, you could provide an additional 40K in Toronto alone. And as this model follows transit with an emphasis on densifying and innovation and fast tracking developments that are in line with existing policy, or even revamping some policies to make things more clear it can be done in other regions across the province as well. Thanks to Ozzy Arole for taking the time to chat, and you can find out more about this report at bdpquadrangle.com. On the way, the FIFA 2026 World Cup will be coming to Toronto, and while we won't really have a full picture till probably December of 2025, Canada and Mexico will each host 13 games, while the United States gets the remaining 78 78? Well, that hardly seems fair. You may have heard that Toronto will be hosting a few FIFA World Cup games. Don't get too excited, though. How old are you? Okay, well, you'll be two years older than you are now by the time it happens. And the city has a lot of work to do to prepare. Now, FIFA is mapping out some of the games, though. And the first World Cup game to be played on Canadian soil will be June 12th, 2026, at BMO Field. So here's the North American breakdown Canada and Mexico will each host 13 games, and the United States will get 78. Should we feel a type of way about this that hardly seems fair? Moshe Lander is a sports economist at Concordia University.
2: There's lots to be sore about. This isn't one of them. There's 16 cities that are going to host the World Cup between the three countries. Um, Back of the envelope calculation, I think there's going to be something around 104 games. So if you take 104 divided by 16, it works out to about six, six and a half. So you know what? Toronto's getting... Maybe a little less than its fair share, but not substantially. And so when you factor in that there's a lot of American cities that are going to be hosting it, it's all roughly proportional.
0: And one of the reasons it's done this way, split up across many cities and spread out over three very large countries, is because it's not a huge moneymaker, despite all the hype.
2: If you take a look at uh, Brazil and South Africa, your heart breaks when you see that they spent all of that money building stadiums that are now weed infested, half empty, unused, unloved. Uh and you know, they splashed hundreds of millions of dollars because FIFA is a very demanding organization in terms of what they expect. Uh, but it doesn't deliver economic benefits. And so a lot of the trend in these big scale events like the Olympics, uh, like the World Cup, like Euro, which is the European kind of championships for, for soccer, uh, you split it among countries, you certainly split it among cities. And it's a way to try and minimize the, minimize the losses that are going to happen. Um, if you're not going to go down this route, then the only other route that's left is to have it in dictatorships or petrostates states where voters and taxpayers don't really count for much anyway.
0: Toronto estimates that the Games will generate about $400 million in revenue and create thousands of jobs. The cost, though, around $300 million total, and Toronto is on the hook for $90 bucks. So does the math work? Is this a good spend? I don't buy
2: any of those numbers that the government is spewing. I, I think they're understating the costs. I think they're overstating the benefits and they're certainly overstating the number of jobs that are going to be created. So it, it's not going to be a moneymaker. Uh, I'm not even sure what the benefit is to Toronto. Uh, Toronto is one of the most multicultural cities in the world. And it's almost impossible to think that there is a country out there that has not heard of Toronto if you've heard of Canada. And so it's not like it's going to raise the profile of the city internationally. It's not like it's going to raise the number of tourists that come. Toronto is a huge destination in the summer anyway. So for every soccer tourist that's going to come and pump money into the economy, it's really just bumping out somebody that's coming to Toronto to experience Canada in the summertime. Uh, and, and so I, I think the benefits are going to be massively overstated. Uh, and it is going to be the city that's turning its pockets inside out. But I don't know that they're going to get filled back up with the money that they're expecting.
0: Uh-huh. But who doesn't love World Cup soccer? in a couple of years. For a lot of money, we'll probably never see again. And so Toronto will host June 12th, which is Canada's first group game. And then there will be a match on the 17th, the 20th, 23rd and 26th. Then the round of 32 game will be at BMO on July 2nd. Vancouver has one more game than Toronto, but that's because BC Place Stadium can hold more people. There's a capacity of 54,000, which is a far cry from BMO Field's adorable capacity of about 30,000. Don't worry, though, they're adding seats. And when that's all said and done, you'll be able to get about 45,000 World Cup fans in there. But where will they park? Oh, I know, on the lakeshore. It'll be a mess. So let's go back to some simpler times, April of 2007, when BMO Field first opened to the public. With more on that, here is producer Glenn Burgonier. Simpler
3: times indeed, Danny, because even back when the stadium was first constructed, it was actually specifically done for only one team, the Toronto FC. And it took almost a decade before the Argonauts were even allowed to play there. Construction for the stadium began in 2006 and was a joint project between the municipal, provincial and federal governments and Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment, it cost a surprising $62.9 million to construct this stadium. And if you want to include the land purchase, it still only costs $72.8 million, which I know is a lot of money, but that honestly sounds like pennies considering what I would assume it would cost to build today. The stadium was built to perfectly house a new soccer team, but due to some tricky negotiations and other, let's say issues, the MLSE refused to build the stadium to CFL standards making it an impossibility for the Argonauts to play there. BMO Field held its first exhibition match on April 28, 2007 and had its official grand opening the following May. And fun fact, it even had its liquor license temporarily suspended the following July due to a minor being caught consuming alcohol within the field. But by 2014, due to many talks and negotiations, BMO Field was beginning a renovation that would finally make it eligible for CFL regulation as well as add thousands of additional seatings. So when it reopened in 2016, it not only was the home of Toronto FC, but also the Argonauts, and can hold roughly 30,000 seats for standard FC games and just over 26,000 seats for CFL games. But the stadium does has the ability to add extra seating to accommodate closer to about 40,000 people. And now regularly, BMO Field hosts many major sporting events such as the Grey Cup games, Pan Am games, FIFA Under 20 men and women games, and now, in 2026, it will host six FIFA World Cup matches. But, due to extremely rigid rules surrounding intellectual property and corporate branding, BMO Field will have to temporarily be renamed the entirely unimaginative Toronto Stadium. But on the plus side, at least the name perfectly describes what it is, even if the Toronto Stadium is really only one of three major stadiums in the downtown core.
0: Moral of today's episode is that Toronto is going to be under construction forever, and FIFA is going to treat us like a hot summer fling. Come in with their big promises, flashy outfits, and stacks of cash, use us, and then leave us for our sister. I Love the Drama. This podcast is brought to you by 640 Toronto and features audio from shows across the Chorus Entertainment Network. I'm Danny Stover. Today in TO is produced by me, Glenn Bergonier, and David Spargala. Join me again next Wednesday for a brand new episode. And in the meantime, enjoy the rest of your week and we'll talk soon. Bye-bye.